Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and Hunter and I are here in Stoneville, and then we have esteemed gentleman Dr. Larry Steckel on the phone with us. Larry, how is Tennessee? Tennessee is good right now. Temperature is good, and it's uh, it's going to heat up again, but boy, it's beautiful right now. So the last time Tom and I podcasted, we had Daniel on, and we talked about Johnson grass, and that was Tuesday morning, and it was nice and pleasant. I don't know what the temperature is. Friday afternoon now. I don't know what the temperature is now, Tom. I know I looked this morning, and you better enjoy 99 today because, according to the forecast, you weren't going to see 99 again for no. That's right. It's going to be so. well over 100. Uh, Feels like 101 right now. Okay, that's not awful. Check back with us on Monday, and it'll probably feel like 109 or something. <sighs> yeah, next week's supposed to be a scorcher. At that time of the year, wouldn't you, you wouldn't even really notice it if we hadn't had those two cool days that made it really nice and kind of flipped your switch towards fall a little bit, and then it comes screeching to a halt. It's August, still summertime. That's right. Typically, September 1 dove hunting day is a scorcher, so we still got that. So have y'all started cutting anything yet, Larry? I know we're going to drop this a little bit later than we record it, but for the middle of August, have y'all cut anything? No, we haven't. Not, not yet. We're probably another week away from somebody, somebody maybe trying some with some moisture. But we, we still got a little more time. They really are getting into the corn this week, and that'll continue on to the end now, I'm sure, because you see some beans that have been desiccated, and those acres will pick up. So we'll be cutting from now till they get done. Hope you all have a good crop. I think we're going to have a great soybean crop and, and cotton crop. And the corn, it's going to be good, I think. But we had a pretty good dry spell there in June during pollination. I don't think it may take it the top end out. Hunter, what you think about the rice? Everything looks good. I didn't expect it to look this good with the heat we went through. But so far, everything looks good. We'll see in the next week or two. I saw some yesterday. The levees had been flattened out, and it's definitely quite a bit that's been drained for sure. I think we've got a couple of guys starting today. Maybe a few started yesterday, but next week I think is really when we'll kick off with rice harvest. Of course, by the time folks are hearing this, it'll probably be full bore by then because we are going to hold this one for a, a week or so after we record it. Larry, you know I always like to ask you something kind of weird. And I'm not going to ask you anything weird this time because I didn't think about it prior to. So I'm going to ask you a question I've been asking a bunch of guys this summer because it always either makes me chuckle or fascinates me what the response is. So in your years of doing what you do, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Oh, craziest thing. Oh, there's been a lot of them through the years um, <laughs> come to mind. I'm trying to think of one that really stands out. Oh, boy. One of the things that seems kind of crazy to me, and maybe I'm just not embracing change, is just, uh, and I know y'all have been doing it, and we're starting to do it here, is, is the phenomenon of pushing soybean planting to the front of the row or to the forefront and kind of corn sometimes a little later. I'm still trying to get adapted to that. To me, that's kind of crazy, just, just that thought process, just, decades of weed science work and agronomist work when I worked for Pioneer. And it was always corn went in the ground as hard and as fast as you could first. And then, then you thought about soybeans and now it's, that's kind of turned on its head. And I think that's kind of really interesting, that big a switch. Well, soybeans have elevated themselves to such a 
big degree in the time we've all been doing this. It's just not an afterthought anymore. It's a bona fide cash crop that's driving a train in a lot of cases. Yeah. You know, heck, Larry, back in the day, we used to plant those soybean sentinel plots to look for soybean rust in February some years. And you'd blow yeah. farmers' minds when the stuff was six feet tall and looked so great by the time he got to, you know, sometime in July. They're like, maybe this early thing is a good idea. So you definitely, there's <laughs> some of that that pushed that envelope in some places. Of course, some of those places, <laughs> you could be under a flood by the time he got there in February. So it wasn't like they were going to be able to get into the ground and do anything anyways. What's kind of interesting to me, Tom, is just, uh, I guess maybe some of the, fungicide seed treatments have drove this, but even though up in Illinois, I hear him talking about planting in February and I'm like, seriously? I mean, it gets cold there. I, it just surprises me how that's kind of become the, the thing to do now. I think the seed treatments have probably contributed some to that, Larry, because it definitely okay. can help some of that cool, wet type weather situations. But some years, yeah, I think they might be starting a little too early. When I was growing up, soybeans were called poverty peas, which y'all are probably going to tease me and say that wasn't that long ago. That was a different era. <laughs> it was different a di- era. It was a different era. <laughs> That's right. Totally different era. That was a different. I got text messages about how long is an era after the last podcast, so I'm going to avoid that word. We're going to spin that one back up for You're you. You're only like 20, so it's not longer than that. <laughs> 28. <laughs> Well, you're a whole 23 years younger than I am. <laughs> I don't feel like it with all these kids. That was a bad idea. I don't know who let me do that. Hunter's got two little ones, Larry, and one on the way. Oh, wow. Terrific. We're, That's wonderful. We're very prolific. Have they not told you it's the Cleveland water? That's It's, it's the water up there, man. It must be. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, we had Daniel Stevenson on the podcast, and we talked about controlling Johnson grass, and Daniel has done as much or more on Johnson grass than anybody I know at least. And so today we called Larry and invited Hunter to walk over with us to talk about controlling annual grass. When Hunter was in school, his whole project was on controlling annual grass. A big part of that was in row crops under the extend umbrella And then coincidentally, at the same time Hunter was in school, there was a dude working for Larry that was kind of doing a similar project. Of course, it had a Tennessee slant on it, and ours had a Mississippi slant on it. So that's why we got Larry and Hunter on today. So, Larry, since you're on the phone, we'll let you go first. What's the deal with grass in Tennessee? And I know that's way open-ended. You definitely got glyphosate resistance in barnyard grass and just a variety of issues. So what have you seen with annual grass control over the past two, three, five years? Well, it's really become more and more of a struggle every year to control. Really, it's it's kind of three different general species, but it kind of really started when the extended crop started rolling, and it's, it's gone from bad to worse. We were having some problems before that with Roundup resistance, but after the extended crops came on, uh, we started seeing it just really ramp up, and, and this year's been as bad as, as really last year, which I thought was, was kind of the worst year we'd had till then. But uh, the one that by far I get the most calls on now is goosegrass. It used to be barnyard grass, or I, uh, Hunter and I were talking about this the other day, one of the barnyard grasses. There's some three different species we can find in the field here in Tennessee, but we'll just call it barnyard grass in, in, in general. But 
but more recently it's been it's been goosegrass uh, becoming a huge issue in, in cotton and soybeans a little less so seems like in corn but cotton and soybeans certainly it's really been a, been a problem we first you know that was the first grass we we, we confirmed glyphosate resistant that's been gosh 12 15 years ago now and it, it kind of kept spreading becoming more of an issue but boy now you can just find it seems like about everywhere and, and just overwhelming pop population since I got some cotton fields last year and a couple this year that you, you drive by and you think it's a hay field you know there's cotton out there and it's it's been sprayed multiple multiple times they've got 60 70 80 dollars worth of herbicide out there and finally kind of sort of sort of get it beat down so and then of course the other one's has been the barnyard grass we've seen more issues with it uh, it's kind of an interesting like last year when we saw more of a switch to goosegrass and it's kind of continued this year i think it kind of depends a little bit on the june if we have a hotter drier june it seems like goosegrass is more of an issue and if we have more of a wetter june it seems like barnyard grass is but kind of how it's kind of shaken out uh, and some of it's due to glyphosate resistance in both species but a lot more of it has to do with the way we're managing weeds now in our in our auction crops particularly extend crops because we're seeing some antagonism clearly and uh and Clay Perkins did a bunch of work on this, and I know Hunter's done some as well. But what we're finding is some of the population that's out there is glyphosate-resistant, but a big percentage of it is the grasses out there because uh, of antagonism. We're seeing where dicamba is basically inhibiting the translocation of glyphosate and, and also even even clethidin to getting where it needs to get in the grass plant to, to consistently kill it. And especially if you don't kill it on that first shot, you're really behind the eight ball trying to ever, ever clean it back up. But kind of the last gas a lot of folks do is hit it with a big shot of Liberty. And that if it's been beat down enough with some earlier applications, that last shot of Liberty seems to kind of maybe get it kind of being out of the way. But uh, it's been our number one really problem in row crops last couple of years now. It's been goose grass and barnyard grass. And I think I can echo almost exactly what you said for us, Larry. Goose grass. And prickly cider, I think, would be my two biggest calls over the past couple of years. And I really thought last year, I said this on the episode we did about Johnson grass, I really thought last year it was because of the temperature that we had in June. It was hot in June this year, not quite as hot as it was last year, and still pretty dry, too. And it was just as bad or worse this year as last year. And then your comment about just overwhelming populations, I I can't explain that. And it's the tea weed to a certain degree too. We always had tea weeds and then where did they come from all of a sudden in these numbers that we see them at now and I put goosegrass in that same category. I don't know where it came from all of a sudden that dense. I mean we've had glyphosate resistance just like what you said. I don't remember what year it was but it's a number of years ago that we knew we had glyphosate resistance and really didn't even worry about it much again after that outside of some isolated areas and man now it is fast approaching being the worst weed that we have yeah it's, it's really kind of turned on its head the main part of that you know you don't have pigweed out there as competitive and, and so the grass kind of gets an advantage there but it's been kind of interesting because we still now we got areas now where we're having struggles still in pigweed with with dicamba and what's interesting is in those fields where the pigweed's a problem you don't see grass and vice versa in fields where grass is a problem you really don't see pigweed something kind of fills that void seems like uh, one or the other We've dealt with the same problems in Mississippi since the dicamba crops were released. And from everything we've figured out, it's kind of like what you alluded to is, 
you know, the dicamba's reducing the amount of glyphosate that we're getting in the plant and getting where we need to to kill it. And so I think most of the work we did was try to figure out how can we get as much glyphosate where we need it to this point, try to control this grass because this problem's just been getting bigger and bigger for us over the past few years. Hunter, was it you that I heard say, kind of maybe looking at different glyphosate formulations, if there's any advantage to one over the other? That was kind of new to me. We did some of that. We looked at the different formulations. And so the isopropylamine salts of glyphosate, we got the lowest control with those when we mixed them with dicamba versus the K-salts. But then they came out and changed the label where you couldn't mix those because of volatility issues anyway. So we never did anything with that data from that point. Okay. Got it. Hunter had a lot of stuff that he did when he was in school that really had never seen the light of day. He really did enough for two degrees. <laughs> I don't know how many. 24. 24. I did, I did it again. <laughs> Good. Jason Whoa. went from sitting at the microphone to all of a sudden the chair just decided to push him I down hit, to the floor. I hit the button on the chair with my foot, Larry, and I sunk. Well, <laughs> is that still the case, Hunter? I mean, you really can't then talk about any of those things because they've changed the dicamba label. I mean, we could talk about them. I don't see anything wrong with talking about it. It's just not useful from a practical standpoint because you can't do it in the real world. And then the one we saw the very least control with was actually a mix of the K-salt and the isopropylamine salt. So it was kind of half of both. And we got really low control with that one with the grasses. That's interesting. There was one day I was trying to figure out what was going on and digging through the web. And I found a paper from like the 90s and I actually had to take it in Jason's office to try to figure out what they were saying. Era. Uh, era. Two eras. <laughs> Essentially, right. dicamba is a salt. It's positively charged. Glyphosate is negatively charged. So they bind, and then the glyphosate becomes inactive. So when you mix those in the tank, you lose a little bit of control there. And so that we went from there and then built on that. So when you put them in the tank together, you know, you lose 7 or 8%. With the nozzles, when you mix them, you do lose some control. When you go down to a TTI, that might be another 4%. Yeah. It wasn't that great. And then when you start cutting your GPA, so we didn't see any different with the 10 GPA versus a 15, but when we went down to 5, we lost another 10% control. Everything you added to that tank, kept, you kept losing control. Residual herbicides, we lost 3 or 4% there. So it really, we never really teased anything out to say it's exactly this. It was just a whole lot of stuff that could combine that gets us to that 50% control. Oh, yeah. And then the DRAs, they, they drop you another 5%. Yeah, so it's just a compilation of stuff, Tom, that just piles on. Well, and then what's your best option? Because if you don't have a crop in the field that's going to be tolerant to glufosinate, what are you going to come back with as a second application if you need to make a follow-up application? So 2019, we didn't kill very much of grass at all. The next year, it wasn't as hot and dry, and we killed a lot more grass. So I think when you're mixing them, you know, and that plant's not stressed and you can get more of that glyphosate in the plant, stomata's open, glyphosate's getting in the plant, getting around in the plant, it's actively metabolizing the herbicide and moving it around. We got better control, but when it gets hot and dry and that plant starts to shut down to conserve, that glyphosate doesn't get in there as much and then we get reduced control. In a year like that, you can split them out and get better control, but a year where, you know, we've got normal cool temperatures, regular rains, if you put them together, we don't see that antagonism. And that's one of the reasons it's been hard to tease out because doing field work, you never know what the weather is going to be like. Yeah, you sure don't. Can you go so far as saying is it, it's a time of day application? Would that have any impact on that? I hate to raise that type of question. 
a lot of that work has been done. Tom, Larry, and I were involved with a project on that with Liberty many years ago. And a product like Liberty, certainly time of day makes a big difference. I've seen stuff with some of the auctions, not under the umbrella of extend or enlist, but just auction response. And there's some effect. But then with something like the auctions, you got to balance time of day with yeah. wind, too. <clears throat> That's and right. The, and the tendency for us to have higher wind in the middle part of the day. And then working in rice the past two years specifically, one of the things that I've seen a lot is artificially high pH from our groundwater having high bicarbs in it. And so I got to wondering about that and looking into it. And there's been a lot of work shown where glyphosate actually is hydrolyzed. I don't know if I said that correctly. Uh, into a different molecule when it comes into contact with bicarbs. And so it's less active if you've got groundwater with high bicarbs. So that was one thing we never looked at that might be interesting to go forward with is our water quality that we're using to make that spray solution. And that's not even falling under the category of hard water, which we know from years gone by, glyphosate doesn't do well with hard water for sure. So, Larry, what is the strategy in Tennessee for managing these populations of grass, resistant or not? And the biggest one that I've been promoting, and some folks have done it and had really good success with it, most folks are reluctant to do it, is to is to not try and kill the grass with the dicamba application. So, uh, you know, even leaving Roundup out of the tank and spraying it seven, ten days later. And I've had a lot of folks have great success doing that. Stop putting them both in the tank together. And, and if some of them, you know, called me up, I don't I imagine you all get the same thing. You, if, if your recommendation works, you usually don't hear about it. If it doesn't work, you hear about it. That's right. <laughs> but I actually, I've actually had somebody, well, a couple of farmers called me up that I didn't remember Roundup worked this good on grass, just putting it out by itself. So that's been probably one of the more effective things as far as recommendations to try and control it. The other is, and I know you all have tried it too with varying deals of success is adding some clethodim in with it and that does seem to help some but it's still uh, it isn't the entire answer trying to overcome that antagonism hunter even had one year where the clethodim hurt it like was, pretty significantly hurt was, the control it was 10 percent worse or more when we added clethodim that's interesting it didn't happen all the time but we did that did happen to us one year when he was doing that project and I think the clethodem has been the way that we have gone with it, Larry. But we're also creeping big time on the rate with that product. We're getting up to some what you would think would be pretty crazy rates for an annual grass. And like you said, with varying degrees of success. Here's something that I thought about while we've been talking, Larry. Do you think that thing comes up earlier than some of the other grasses? Because it seems like a lot of times if you end up in the field looking at goosegrass, it's probably going to have some heads on it. Even what you would think would be relatively early, late May, early June, down here, I mean, I see a lot of goosegrass that's headed out. And we know that once grass goes reproductive, that clethodem for sure, and then Roundup maybe to a slightly lesser degree, just doesn't do well on reproductive grass. Yeah, I think there is something to that. It, it does seem to jump out of the gate quicker than a lot of the others uh, going going maturity. And that's the thing that's been interesting about this whole thing. It, it hasn't been all the grasses uh, that like Amber Roundup tech mix hasn't controlled. Uh, it's doing fine on crabgrass. 
broadleaf signal grass, the sprangle tops, and we're not seeing any problem controlling those grasses with that tank mix. It's just a few species, and the barnyard grass and, and uh, goose grass are, are by far the most prevalent. A little bit of fall panic at times we seem to struggle with, but that, otherwise, all the other grasses we seem to control. That I've always thought that was a little interesting, why, why those species. But in, in maybe some earlier going to maturity with, like, goose grasses is one way they're having some better tolerance to, uh, to those applications. Well, if you combine that possibility that it is reproductive, a lot of times we're making the application and then pile these other factors that we talked about on, whether it's nozzles or DRAs or tank mixes or whatever, that's just going to be another thing that adds into that reduction of control. And I have another question that's not really going to help answer anything, but I was thinking about it. So the physiology of goose grass, you know, it's more spread out. It's got a longer stem, less leaf area, as opposed to our other grasses. Are we just not getting as much coverage on it because there's not as much area to get to? I think that's a legit possibility too, Hunter. Yeah. And I would have said, Larry, at one point, the problems with grass control were just whichever grass you had, whether it was barnyard or, or brawly signal grass or whatever. But then I would say my thinking has changed now to what you said. It's goose grass and Johnson grass, and then barnyard grass would be third in that pecking order. But the other ones, crab grasses and signal grass, we just don't have a, as much of a problem with. And so I think part of that is Johnson grass and goose grass, if you just took all these factors that we've been talking about and put them to the side, those are two of the harder to control grasses to start with. And then you put it in some suboptimal yep. conditions, whether it's these mixtures or weather or growth stage or, or whatever. And then that switch between control and not control is just a lot tighter uh, when you've got a species like that that's inherently difficult to control to start with. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. I know it's been interesting going from, you know, pigweed to, to the grasses being such an issue and they're, they really haven't gone anywhere. We had a little bit of problem, it seems like, and this is some stuff uh, Clay did, but we're seeing pigweed develop ever more tolerance to dicamba where we're starting to push the rate. And what we found is when you start pushing the rate of dicamba, the antagonism it, cause, it causes lasts longer in the plant. It takes longer to wear off. So, you know, if you're, you're using, you know, the gallon of tin and junior rate, you know, that antagonism, at least from clay stuff, you know, it's wore off about seven days. If you start doing gallon to five, uh, like some are doing now, you, you need to wait about two weeks for that antagonism to wear off. So that's kind of been an interesting twist we've seen of late. And two weeks in that time of year, man, when you got more than likely good moisture and certainly good heat unit accumulation, I mean, your growth rate regardless of the weed species, is going to be pretty good. Pushing an application out two weeks later, you know, the odds of you getting acceptable control is pretty low. Are not good, yeah. and that's Even if that works as good as it's going to work, it's just its ceiling is lower at that point because you got such a bigger target plant. Exactly. It's working against you. Pushing the race on, on dicamba, I think you're probably really better off to try and target the grass first. Then you could probably wait three or four days and spray your pigweed, but... If you are going to swap up the application, but a lot of folks just because of the logistics, they just they just dump them together and go. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I struggle calling it antagonism because it's not just 
dikamba. <laughs> everything else, <laughs> like Hunter was describing. Yeah. It's a bunch of different things. It's not just the herbicide interaction. Yes, I mean, the antagonism, that's an actual interaction in the plant. I started to say yep. chemical reaction. I don't know if that's necessarily the, the right thing, but it's in, that's going on in the plant. It's antagonism between those two active ingredients. This other stuff is in well, the tank. I, yeah, it's in the it's either an interaction in the tank or it's an interaction before the herbicide makes it across the cuticle into the plant. It all works together to reduce control, but it's not textbook antagonism. I think that's why we call all my stuff reduced control instead yeah. of antagonism. Yeah, that'd be a better description. Can't you add AMS to do something to your water quality too? Am I Yeah, it'll bring the pH, pH towards neutral, right? It affects the volatility of dicamba because it changes the pH of the solution. So you can't put AMS with dicamba but you need AMS with select to get your pH right with that mixture in most cases. And you may need that with the water then to alter your pH automatically. Isn't that a... Depending on your water source. And getting the most out of your glyphosate is a moving target, essentially. It really is. That's the thing. We've done some stuff with just monitoring wells, and they, they don't stay static. They change over time. And there's a lot of things that go into it. How you know how much rainfall you got? How deep the aquifer is? It's just it's surprising how big a swing you can get in pH or you know some of the other uh, factors that they'll get in. Municipal it. water treatments change. Yep. Oh, that's right. Exactly. I thought I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly right. They do change. I didn't realize how much change you get just over time. Uh, it's, and, and like Hunter said, it's not really that predictable uh, what you're going to get. And in the range of pH, we did a lot of pH measuring, but it, it, here in Tennessee, it wasn't anything to be, you know, four or five in some water sources and up over eight somewhere else. And those are drastically different starting points when you're when you're mixing herbicides. And then sometimes the source of that, either high pH or low pH, can be different things. Just like Hunter was talking about with the bicarbonate, there, there can be other reasons you have high pH water, too. Exactly, the bicarbonate. You kind of got to know what the cause of your pH being out of range is, too. Yeah, you really can. You know, one thing on West Tennessee, we're more like y'all, but you get in the middle Tennessee where, you know, a field might be located next to a, uh, you know, an old strip mine. <laughs> it, it's crazy what, what kind of water source you're starting with then. You really need to know and have it tested. Coming straight out of limestone. Yes, Exactly. Larry and Hunter, thanks for your time this afternoon. Really appreciate it. I mean, I think that's a pretty important topic, and I'm, I'm sure we covered a whole bunch of important pieces that need to be considered. Larry's coming to the short course, so he'll be in Startwell in December. Again, thank you for that in advance, Larry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what are those dates again? <laughs> I need to get that down. <laughs> December 4th through the 6th. So Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at the where we always are at the Mill Center in Startwell. That's the beginning of the year, I think, if it's first. Yeah. Everything's new. Yeah, that's right. We hope you have a good weekend, man. Thank you. Try y'all. not to get too hot. All right. Y'all too. See you, man. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 